Let's get one thing clear right off the bat. Carrots don't help you see in the dark, unless you have a vitamin A deficiency. Carrots do taste good, though. That's not a myth. They're especially good when you make them into a cake. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. Carrots and night vision connection has a definite and very recent source, Great Britain, during World War II. The Royal Air Force had made considerable advances in radar, and British fighters were taking an increasingly heavy toll on Nazi bombers, since they had early warning of their positions. In order to distract the Nazis from prying too deeply into why more and more of their bombers were being shot down, the RAF announced in British newspapers that they were feeding large quantities of carrots to their pilots in order to improve their night vision. The Luftwaffe High Command was evidently satisfied by this explanation. Unfortunately, so was the British public. The myth persists to this day. In all likelihood, the carrot was originally cultivated not for its root, which in the wild ancestor of the modern domestic carrot is not very pleasant tasting, but for its leaves and seeds. It is in fact a close relative of many of our common garden herbs, including cumin, parsley, dill, and fennel. Carrot cultivation began in Central Asia, likely around Afghanistan, and spread from there. The original carrots came in two main colors, a reddish purple and a greenish yellow. The familiar orange carrot was evidently developed in the Netherlands sometime in the 17th century when it begins to appear in Dutch paintings. The sweet flavor of carrots has long been the central part of its appeal, especially before easy access to refined sugar, and carrot cakes and other sweet dishes have a long history. They had fallen somewhat out of favor in the 19th century, however, once sugar became a commodity rather than a luxury. Once again, the British during World War II inserted themselves into carrot history with their ration board heavily publicizing carrot cakes and carrot puddings in order to stretch the supply of sugar, causing a resurgence in popularity. However, the addition of carrots to a batter filled with eggs, sugar, and vast quantities of fat does not, no matter how much some people would like to believe, make carrot cake any more nutritious than its non-vegetable cousins. When life hands you carrots, make carrot cake, right? I got lots of carrots, probably wound up with eight or 10 pounds of them anyway, out of a really pretty small plot, maybe two and a half by two and a half feet, maybe three by three. That's kind of pushing it though. And the last couple of years I have switched my carrot type from trying to grow the old, the long carrots, you know, that when you think of a carrot, that's the carrot that you think of. They're long and they're couple of inches across, inch and a half across, whatever. And I never had much luck with it. <laughs> they kind of require very deep sandy soil, which is not very common in Alaska. And it's definitely does not exist at my house. I had kind of gotten to a point where I was sort of burned out on carrots and I was like, I'm not going to grow carrots anymore. I'm just going to buy them at the store. Supermarket carrots are okay. You know, they get you like 85% of the way there, you know, and then in the summer, there are people around here who can grow carrots, uh, either because they happen to look out on having some fairly light soil, or they've just been growing carrots in specific beds for a long time and making them deep enough so that now they grow carrots really well. And uh, I am neither one of those people. <laughs> so I was kind of getting burned out on carrots. And then I discovered this particular variety of carrots called, there's various names. Typically there's some variation on Parisian or Parisian market. And what they are is a really small carrot. Like there's one that I'm holding in my hand right now that is considered fairly large, is really about the size of a golf ball. They're squat, they're very short, 
they don't get very big. And in fact, when they do get big, they don't really get very long. They just kind of fill out and become a little more cylindrical. Like I just picked up probably the biggest one that I grew this year. And it really is literally barely bigger than a golf ball. They do really well in heavy soil. When I would always try to grow the longer style carrots in that kind of a soil, they would either get super deformed and look really bad and they would almost always stay kind of skinny. Even if they did manage to get long, they'd never, they would never get very big. And I don't know if, you know, it was just because they kept, they wanted to grow down and didn't want to grow out. But specifically these, these Parisian market carrots, they want to grow out. They don't want to grow down. And it's a very useful, <laughs> it's a very useful characteristic in an Alaska carrot. Because frankly, if the only choice was between having no, growing no carrots and spending years and years and years building up a carrot bed that could produce good long carrots, I would personally, because I'm lazy, select no carrots at all. And I would just buy my carrots from the farmer's market in the summer and from the supermarket the rest of the year. But since I've discovered these, I don't have to worry about it. I sew them fairly thickly as well. I don't, I'm really bad about thinning too they will still grow to a decent size. Now, if there's a bunch clumped together, then they'll be a little bit smaller, sometimes too small to really want to use in a, in a situation where you want to have a big carrot. But they are still, when they are very small, incredibly useful for my favorite thing to do with them, really, which is pickling them. And since I've discovered pickled carrots, my life has gotten better. So pickled carrots, uh, is specifically their lacto-fermented carrots, the exact same process as making any other lacto-fermented vegetable, sauerkraut, you know, fermented cucumbers. The only big variable in these things is the amount of salt that you use. Um, I have gradually, I started between three and a half and four percent salt, and I've gradually sort of dialed that back to this year, and I'm happy with this year's production of pickles. I'm hovering more around three percent. There are recipes for lacto-fermented vegetables that use as little as two and a half percent. Those I think require a little bit, like you gotta be pretty hands-on. You wanna constantly be checking and you and ideally you, you have a better way of maintaining temperature than I do. I'm just doing these on the floor of my pantry. If I had a little bit more of a temp temperature controlled room or if I was trying to make a really consistent product like in a restaurant situation, then I would control some of the variables a little bit more than I really do right now. Right now I kind of throw them in a jar with three and a half percent or three percent salt and some whatever mint and dill and whatever else and fill it up with a three percent brine and call it good leave it sitting on the floor for a couple of weeks and skim off any white mold that turns up and then if you get black or or green or uh, red mold then you pretty much have to toss the whole batch but basically that procedure works the ones that i made uh, out of the small pickles out of this year's crop are just about ready. In fact, I tried a couple this morning and they're quite delicious. Uh, they just need a little bit more time, I think. Those will keep all, all through the winter in the fridge. Um, if you wanted to, you could make sure the acidity was right and can them, pressure can them. Um, well, technically, if the acidity is right, you don't even need to pressure can them. You could do that, but I don't want to do that because when you cook them like that, then they get softer. So I just like to screw the lid on the mason jar and stick them in the back of the fridge and forget about them. Um, and they do, they last, like I just a few weeks ago finished the last few from last year's batch and they were awesome. These little golf ball size Parisian carrots are perfect for it. Uh, they're the ideal size. You can fit a lot of them into a jar. You don't have to cut them up. You just wash them. Washing carrots, pain, but I just do it in a bunch of different changes of water until they're mostly clean. And then you can just hit them with a brush um, on the outside. There you go. It just takes, it just takes some time and some water and some patience. These carrots are also perfect in the summertime when you're grilling things. If you put a few on a skewer and throw it on the grill and leave them there for a while, I would say like 45 minutes to an hour is the best. They get super blackened and caramelized and delicious on the outside and really soft on the inside and then you just dress them with a really light dressing i like i think carrots and sesame oil go really well so carrots sesame oil a little miso some rice vinegar will go deliciously with that um, but i when i'm when i'm doing a light like a dressed side vegetable like that i tend to keep things fairly simple just a you know oil vinegar maybe one extra flavor and then boom delicious you can put that next to anything these particular size carrots, like they're really good for that because then they come off in a single chunk. You don't have to chop them up. You don't have to do anything else. They look nice. <laughs> they look really cool when they're all blackened and charred in there. These little 
tiny little carrots. Really nice looking. I love these. I've, they have rekindled my enthusiasm for the carrot. The other nice thing about them is that if you leave them in the ground, they don't get woody like some of the, you know, the normal longer species of carrots or varieties of carrots will, that where the core gets kind of woody and not that appealing. These don't really do that. These you can leave in the ground for quite a while and they don't get that. This is only fit for indifferent rabbit kind of quality. They're, they're not, they're not bland at all. They're not watery. Um, they're just a very lovely and delicious carrot with a lot of sweetness, but they still have that, like that really starbursty kind of carrot flavor. They almost taste orange. They're not candy sweet though. You know, you can bring out the candy sweetness through heating them, cooking them, but when you bite into them, they're just nice and savory. They're a really satisfying carrot to eat. I really enjoy them. And I got a lot of them and about half of them. So I went when I, after I harvested them and did the, you know, initial sort of cleaning up and getting them ready to start processing. I sorted them out and the really, the smallest ones all went into the pickling bucket and the bigger ones went into the, what am I going to do with this stuff bucket? Cause you know, you can freeze them, but if I'm going to go to all the trouble of growing all these carrots, like I kind of, I kind of feel like I should, if I'm going to store them, I should store them in a better way than just freezing them because you can freeze them and they'll come out the other side tasting not too different than a supermarket carrot. There's other things you can do with them. You can, you can can them, you know, in a pressure canner and get, have canned carrots that are ready to go every time. But again, I kind of feel like that sort of dulls some of the, some of the differences between a regular commodity carrot and something that you're going to all this trouble to grow, you know? Otherwise, why not devote the space in the garden to something else and just buy the, the carrots? I got all these carrots. You know what freezes really well? Not gonna lie. They freeze really well is cake layers. So it feels fairly obvious to me to devote the bulk of my carrot crop here to making carrot cake. Some of which of course will consume right now. And some of which will go into the freezer to be consumed at a time in the future when I'm too lazy to make the stuff from scratch, which is frequently I'm a lazy person. With the goal of doing some work now in order to save a bunch of work later, we're gonna make a fairly sizable batch of carrot cake. And this particular carrot cake is mostly going to be based on the recipe by Stella Parks, AKA Brave Tart, who is a fabulous baker who loves, loves, loves traditional American baked goods and is not distracted by a fancy European patisserie. She's pretty much her whole deal is taking American dessert classics and making them as good as they can possibly get. And having made a fair amount of her recipes, I have to say she's pretty good at it. So rather than waste a bunch of time with me making 15 different carrot cakes to try to decide which is the ultimate carrot cake, I'm just gonna use her recipe because I've made it before and it's really good. Uh, I am gonna make a few minor tweaks to it. They're not gonna be anything dramatically different. I'm mostly gonna make them because I have the stuff to do it and I like it that way, which is the best reason to do anything. What distinguishes carrot cake from a lot of other cake recipes, at least in, in the US, is that carrot cake is not a butter cake, or rather there are carrot cake recipes that are butter cakes, but the vast majority of them are not. The vast majority of carrot cakes are in fact oil cakes. And the difference between an oil cake and a, and a butter cake is, well, one, obviously <laughs> butter cakes have butter, so they have kind of a buttery flavor. But the biggest part is that the, the crumb is different. You know, an oil cake tends to have a very, very moist, sort of crumbly, a little almost like muffin-like crumb. It isn't soft the way that a butter cake is. Like a butter cake, when you're eating a really nice, really well-made butter cake, you know how it just sort of, you touch it and it all just kind of falls apart in big pillowy chunks of cake. Well, oil cakes typically have a little more integrity and it's in part, in large part, because of how they're actually made. Butter cakes, which we've made on the show before, are made by creaming butter and sugar. So you take room temperature butter, throw it in with a bunch of sugar, and beat it for a long time in a mixer until it gets fluffy. And that's the basic structure of the cake. And then you add the flour and you add whatever else flavorings, and you'll add typically a little bit of a, of a leavener, 
you know, baking powder or baking soda or whatever, and that will produce the rise. And that's gen that's the structure of the cake. And then sponge cakes, which are the main sort of European strain of cake, which we have also made on the show, those are leavened with eggs. Then they typically don't have a lot of fat at all. Occasionally one will, but for the most part, they don't include butter or oil or anything like that. If they have any fat at all, it's usually from egg yolks. Again, there are exceptions. And those, you beat the eggs, you know, or the egg whites. Sometimes you separate them, sometimes you don't. It depends on the recipe. And that, the eggs, the beaten air in the eggs is what provides the leavening. There's typically not an added leavening. Oil cakes don't cream the butter and the sugar. So you're already going to start out with a little bit of a denser texture than either a butter cake or a sponge cake. But they get most of their, their leavening power from typically the eggs will be beaten in with like any spices or any of the sugar that goes in. That'll make like a batter. And then you'll add the, you'll add the flour to this batter. And that will be, you know, the most that that and that's basically how you mix the cake. So they don't have quite as they don't have quite as light and fluffy a texture, but they tend to be very, very moist. And part of the reason that they're so moist is because they contain a lot of oil um, and <laughs> and that's pure fat. It's not like butter, which is an emulsion of fat and water with some milk solids. It is pure fat. So the way that they the way that the, the order of the ingredients and the way everything works out means that you get a much more rich and moist feeling cake. Now, having said that most carrot cakes are oil cakes, this one uses butter. It's not a butter cake though. It uses brown butter specifically, AKA ghee. You can call it brown butter, you can call it ghee, you can call it whatever you want, it doesn't matter. And this is really useful stuff to have in the kitchen. If I'm really on my game, I try to keep a little bit of this hanging out. Brown butter is simply butter that's been cooked for a long time. You cook out all the water and you brown the milk solids. I have two pounds of butter because I'm gonna be making double Stella Parks' basic recipe here so that I'm gonna have plenty of carrot cake. And there isn't really anything very exciting about making brown butter. You really put your butter in a pan on the lowest burner that you have and you let it cook for about an hour. And it gets everything, it gets the butter really dark uh, it turns brown. You can stop at any point, you know, you can push it pretty far. The only thing is if you push it too far, it's like a roux. If you push it too far and it burns, you're done. You just wasted all this money on two pounds of butter or however much butter you use. You can make it with any, any particular, uh, amount, but it's just, if you're going to go to the trouble of making ghee, it makes sense to make a lot because you can always keep the leftovers. One nice thing about it. And the reason it's so popular in India, which is hot, is that it keeps indefinitely. It is, once you cook out the water and you cook it and you strain out the milk solids, there's nothing left in the fat for bacteria to cling on to. So it lasts way longer than butter. Now I will say too that one thing, another nice thing about ghee is that you don't have to use the, the fancy stuff. You know, you're not gonna get any advantage from using the, the stuff that's eight bucks a pound for the cultured, you know, high fat European butter versus the plain old four buck a pound supermarket butter. You don't get any advantage in buying the expensive butter, so you might as well buy the cheapest butter that you can find for this. The important thing is that it has milk salt. You're gonna cook all the water out, so it doesn't matter if it starts out with a little more water because it's gonna go away anyway. The only other thing that's gonna contribute to the flavor is the milk solids, and those are pretty much the same between both of them. It might, you might wind up with some very subtle taste differences, but really, the brown milk solids are going to overpower everything. Traditionally, also, uh, carrot cake includes nuts. And I'm going to use pecans because I'm from the south and I like pecans. And always remember, always, 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 100% of the time, when you're using nuts in something, always roast your nuts. Always. I know, it takes a while. I know, it's a little bit of pre-planning. But if you will take the time to roast your nuts at about 275 for about an hour, or until, you know, obviously you have to watch. You don't want them to burn, you just want them to roast. If you take the time to do that, the people who eat your food will thank you for it. Because it will be more delicious than the lazy people 
who do not roast their nuts. And I know I say I'm lazy, and it's true, I am lazy. But there's times when you can cut corners, and there's times when you can be lazy, and there's times when you cannot. And roasting nuts is one of those times. And as it happens, both of these take quite a while. And in fact, I am. this is day one of this process. I could do it all in uh, one day pretty easily, but I don't have time today to sit around and make carrot cake all day. I do have a little bit of time today and I have a little bit of time tomorrow. So I'm gonna do these two steps and have them all done and all ready to go. And then I'll be able to assemble my cake tomorrow. While I'm assembling my cake tomorrow, I'll get to make the frosting. And I'm going to use a cream cheese frosting because cream cheese frosting is awesome. Okay, I got my food processor set up. This will make pretty short work of these carrots. You know, I don't use my food processor all that often, but when I want it, I'm so glad I have it. Just turned four pounds of carrots into very finely shredded carrot goo in about a minute. Makes me want like some carrot salad. That stuff with the, <laughs> the mayonnaise and the raisins. Forget what all was in that. Yeah, that's something I haven't had in a long time. <laughs> One thing I should say about this recipe is that the, the, I'm making two batches of it and it's already a very large recipe. So I'm not gonna make this all at once because I do not have, I don't have a big enough mixer. I don't have enough pans. I don't have enough oven space. We're gonna, this is gonna be, this is the first batch. This is just one batch of the amount of the four pounds of carrots that I grated yesterday. Now that said, this size recipe also uses two pounds of carrots, which is a lot for a carrot cake. Cause we want, A, we want very intense carrot flavor, but Stella Parks' recipe is sized for a three layer cake, which is a very tall cake. So it's already a big recipe to begin with. Of, of what I started with, I'm, I'm using half of the original quantities of butter and of carrots. So two pounds of carrots and one, it started out as one pound of butter, but when I clarified it, that actually dropped the, the size quite a bit um, by, let's see, so a pound of butter is 450 grams. And I am actually, I wound up with 370. Uh, 365, I think, was the, the final. I cut the total in half, which you're going to find if you do the math is roughly right around 82%, 80 to 82% of, uh, of the original starting weight, which is the water. And that's where if you do this with different, different qualities of butter, you know, and different styles of butter, you're going to wind up with different amounts of the actual fat. My butter was in the fridge overnight and it solidified, so now I have to melt it. Because remember, even though this contains large amounts of butter, this is in fact an oil-style cake. Butter cakes, if you say butter cake to somebody that bakes, they're immediately going to think of like a regular sort of standard birthday cake where the butter is creamed with the sugar. And this is not that. This is an oil cake, but the oil, the source of the oil is brown butter. And again, I keep all the milk solids and stuff in because it's going to be delicious that way. So I've got that going. That is going to have to melt. And I've got everything else, I think, ready to go. Now, I'm going to say something before I get going about the pans. So the original recipe for this that I'm using calls for three 9 by 3 inch round cake pans. Now, I, <laughs> over the years, my cake pan assortment, I mean, it was never high to begin with because I don't really bake a ton of cakes. I have a couple of 8 by 2 inches, which is way too small for this recipe. But... What I do have are multiple bread loaf pans, standard size, and my favorite pan actually for a lot of things of this nature, I have a Pullman pan, which is a, I think this one is 13 by four inches square, and it's square, and it's made for, a Pullman pan is designed to make Pullman loaves or basically square white sandwich bread. Um, that's, what the, that's what the pan is designed for. It actually has a lid that will keep the top of the bread from doming out and it'll make it, make it square all around. So I have one of those. So I'm gonna use two standard loaf pans and one Pullman pan, and that should be enough to fit all of my, to fit all of my, my batter in. Well, you know, you look at it and you look at the volume of carrots and you're like, I don't know, but I think this should be fine. If it's not, then I'll throw out, I'll, I'll add another, 
eight by two pan. And this is something in a professional situation or you know, somebody who really does bake a lot, like this isn't even something that they think about. Pan size, you know, because they've already got multiple kinds of every kind of pan. And so it's not even a thought. You just do whatever the recipe says for the amount of time that it's going to take at the temperature that it says. And you don't even have to think about it. But if you're, you know, if you're just getting into baking or if you're an infrequent baker, in the actual sort of real world of, you know, non-professional home baking, the pans can be kind of a problem and one of the it's it's always hard reading recipes because they're like you know they sort of assume that you're gonna have the pans that are that are needed and frequently you don't so you gotta innovate a little bit using these alternative pans is one way of doing it i happen to like square cakes personally but that's just me that's an aesthetic thing i think they look really cool when they're square and they're sitting there and they're long and i, I just like it i think it i think it's a i think it's an interesting look um, and you can, I, I can make this Pullman pan cake a layer cake if I just slice along the, the middle of it, then I get a square layer cake, which is cool, I think. But what it does mean is that you do have to be a little bit aware of timing differences. My times are not going to be possibly not even close to what the times in the recipe are. And anybody that's baked for any amount of time knows that you really don't, the one thing you don't trust in a recipe for baking is is time and temperature um, because different ovens behave very differently. Convection ovens are completely different than non-convection ovens. Professional ovens are different. Gas ovens are different. Electric ovens are different. Different sizes of ovens are different. Where the oven racks are matters. Ovens mean that time and temperature are going to be different even if you're using the same kind of pan they call for in the recipe. If you're using different pans, all that stuff might go out the window. So the problem here that I'm going to have to think about beforehand is in a 9 by 3 inch cake pan, the layers are going to be relatively thin and relatively large. So there's going to be a lot of surface area and there's going to be a lot of room for the cakes to rise. They're going to wind up, there's really no way around this, they're going to wind up being fluffier than the cakes that I'm gonna bake in these bread pans. Um, just because there's so much less volume above the carbon dioxide from the baking powder and the baking soda pushing upwards that they, they're not gonna have a very hard time pushing upwards. So they're gonna spring a lot more than they are, than I'm gonna expect today. Like I'm gonna expect this cake is gonna be denser than it, was, than it would be if I baked it in a round cake pan. And it's also going to affect the way that the crust forms, because now I also have way less surface area on the top, which means that the heat is going to be hitting that surface area a lot harder. Um, so I can expect my crust is going to form a lot quicker than it would in the than it would in a round, shallower, wider cake pan. So I can expect a darker crust. If I use the same temperature and I can expect less oven spring. Now I'd still like for this to have some oven spring um, and it will, you know, it's not going to be like, it's not going to be flat. There's still enough baking powder and enough baking soda in here that it's going to push it up, but it has less room to expand. So what I want to do is I want to dial the temperature back a little bit because I don't want the crust to form super fast. There's also a lot more of the cake is going to be in contact with the sides of the pan and the sides of the pan are going to radiate a lot of heat immediately because they're aluminum you know so they're going to get really hot really quick so i'm going to get a really dark crust on the outside which is awesome because crusts are fantastic but the other problem that i'm going to generate is that because of the fact that i have less surface area it's going to take a little longer and and the whole thing is thicker than it would be if it was, you know, an inch and a half in a, in a three inch cake pan. This is going to be, you know, probably two and a half inches deep, maybe three. I'll probably go as deep as three in these, which is a lot more uh, batter for the heat to penetrate, which means it's probably going to take longer to cook. So in her original recipe, which I am looking at right now, she wants 350 and she's saying that the cakes are going to take about 45 minutes. So that's a good starting point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start my temp at 350 as well. Uh, I think that's a that's a pretty 
solid temperature. You know, if she if this was a recipe where she started a little higher, I might not do that. But 350, I think, will be okay. But I'm betting that this is going to take something more on the order of an hour, which is about the time that a lot of quick breads and um, like banana nut breads and stuff like that take. It might be that 350 minutes or 350 degrees for 45 minutes works just fine in these cake pans. But the first time you make any any cake recipe, any baking recipe in either new pan sizes or a new or different oven, you need to expect that something's going to be different. It might not be, which is great, but don't believe recipe times until you've done it in your oven with your pans is pretty much what it boils down to. Let's get going here. As an oil cake, we're not creaming anything, but we're getting a lot of our volume here from our eggs. So we're gonna beat the eggs for a very long time before we start adding anything else except for the sugar. So Stella wants me to combine all of the ingredients except for the flour, the melted butter, the pecans, and the carrots in the bowl of my stand mixer. So I've got six eggs, 220 grams of brown sugar, 395 grams of white sugar, a tablespoon of baking powder, a teaspoon of baking soda, and about a tablespoon and a half or so of vanilla, seven grams of salt, and some spices. Okay, and this is actually one of the places where I'm gonna take a slightly different tack. Not very different, and mostly the reason that I am is because I kind of feel like it. So she wants cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, and cloves, and typically carrot cake will include some spices. And I actually, this is kind of one of those things where I wonder, I don't really know much about the origin of carrot cake, and I wonder if it developed from like a spice, you know, the, the sort of standard spice cakes that are really common. Or sometimes I also wonder if it developed from, in Germany they make sauerkraut cakes, and in Eastern Europe there's a lot of different, typically with cabbage or with sauerkraut, but they use other vegetables too, where they'll incorporate those into bread. They'll also frequently have a lot of spices involved too, so I'm not exactly sure where the modern American carrot cake, if it derived from more of a spice cake or from some of the vegetable breads of Eastern Europe, so I'm not really sure. But the upside is that I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, I believe that carrot is in fact related to caraway and caraway is a really is classic and we'll get to that. We'll get to even more of why I added it in a second. It's a it's a classic flavor in those kind of breads, particularly in rye bread. So I thought maybe I'd add a little bit of caraway into the mix just to get a nice sort of licorice flavor. I think it works really well with carrots. And I have quite a few allspice berries. And I like allspice, and it's called allspice, you know, otherwise known as Jamaican peppercorn, because it does have a lot of the characteristics of a combination of ginger, nutmeg, cloves, whatever. So I thought I'd use some allspice too, because I feel like it has a little bit, almost like a little, like a little sharper note. And I used a little cinnamon. So I'm just pulverizing these all in my mortar and pestle, and you're probably like, you only use that thing all the time because you like the way it sounds on the radio, and you are right. Well, that's not the only reason. And I just pulverized them all with the salt. I threw the salt right in there. Salt's nice in spice mixtures when you're when you're grinding them down like this because it's a good abrasive, so it helps everything happen a lot quicker. And it grinds down the coarse kosher salt into a finer powder, so it incorporates faster. Not that it matters that much, but you know. Okay, that's a really nice smelling. She says to beat this for eight minutes, and she's probably right that it's going to be about like that. You pretty much can't overbeat eggs in a situation like this, and the more you beat them, the better because more air is going to get incorporated in the structure. Again, when you're in cake, when you're making cakes, so much of the 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 structure of the cake is formed at the beginning when you beat whatever it is that you're beating to make to make the basic structure of the cake. Flour and cake isn't really a structural thing the way it is in bread. Flour and cake is more like the skin that that holds the structure together at the end, but the beating of, in this case, the eggs with the sugar and the, or in a butter cake, the beating of the, the creaming of the butter with the sugar, or in a sponge cake, the beating of the eggs alone to make a meringue, these are what gives the cake the basic structure. So if you don't get a fluffy structure right off the bat, you're gonna wind up with a dense cake no matter what you do down the line. So I'm just gonna turn this on and let it go for probably eight minutes. And uh, then we'll come back and we'll start adding the flour 
and assembling the cake and putting it into the oven. Okay, eight minutes are up. We've got some nice fluffy eggs with sugar, lots of air bubbles, considerably higher volume. So now I'm gonna drizzle in my melted butter real quick. Making sure to get as many of those delicious brown bits as possible. And now it's time to add the flour. So Stella wants 450 grams of flour, roughly a pound. In fact, pretty much exactly a pound. Um, of which she divides hers into two-thirds white flour, all-purpose, and a third whole wheat flour. I'm basically going to follow that, except for about a third of the whole wheat flour, I'm going to sub in a little rye flour, because I have rye flour, and I love rye flour, and rye and carrots, again, hearkening back to the sort of Eastern European implications of, of the, the flavors in this bread, uh, rye and carrots are, I mean, they're delicious together. Rye, rye has that amazing spiciness. And the rye, the fact that I was like, oh, I have a little rye flour, I'll throw that in. That was what generated the caraway seeds in the spice mixture because rye and caraway, obviously, in especially in the U.S., uh, is a classic. In fact, a lot of people think that the taste of rye is the taste of caraway, which it's not, but they're inextricably linked in our baking consciousness. So I used uh, right about 40 grams of rye flour to about 110 grams of whole wheat flour. In this case, this was whole wheat pastry flour because I had it. And, and then the rest, a little over 300 grams of white all-purpose flour. I'm just gonna add this while the mixer is running on very low speed, just until it's incorporated, because as always, when adding flour to cakes, we do not want to overdevelop gluten because that is how we get tough cakes. And I'm gonna scrape this down once. We just wanna make sure that the mixture is smooth with no flour clumps. That's all we're going for here. Now, we are ready for the final ingredients which are the carrots and the pecans. Uh, we're just gonna fold these in fairly gently, so again, that we don't overwork the flour, develop too much gluten. Fold in about a third of the carrots at a time. I don't like to chop my pecans. Honestly, I think they're, I like the texture better if you just kind of smush them with your fingers. Pecans and walnuts both, you can do that with. And now my mixing bowl is full to the top with batter. The other thing you have to expect if you're not using the cake pan called for in the original recipe is that, you know, you can do the math. I could sit, sit here and figure out the volume of all the different cake pans and, uh, and know exactly how much of this batter I should be able to put into each one. You know, it, it would be fairly simple, but I, I'm not that great at math to begin with. And uh, for a one-off thing like this, I don't think it matters. I have uh, floured and buttered my Pullman pan because it is, uh, it is still in pretty good shape. My other two pans are, they've suffered some abuse over the years, so they're all scratched up and uh, not in the best shape, the insides anyway. So for those, I've lined them with parchment paper and greased them. Uh, my Pullman pan is floured and buttered. So I'm gonna fill this Pullman pan first, a little more than halfway. I wanna make sure that there's plenty of room for this batter to expand. So that's just a little more than halfway. Now I'll fill my two smaller loaf pans the same. And this is actually gonna be just, just about right. All right, that actually worked out just fine. So they are all slightly higher than half in their pans. I'm gonna drop them into the oven. I will check on them a few times, but for the most part, my job here is done until these guys are cooked. Into the oven they go at 350. It's true that baking is very scientific, but that implies that you're controlling different variables. And in this case, we have many variables that are different from the original recipe. So this is where the art comes into play. That's just how it is. 45 minutes and 350 degrees into this process, I just checked and the insides of these guys are still a little bit raw, which is unsurprising and something that I did expect. They don't look like they're browning too much on the outside, so kind of in the interest of speeding this process up a little bit. Uh, just crank the temperature a little bit to 400 degrees. Okay, just pulled them, and uh, the 
cake tester came out clean. They were in for pretty much exactly an hour. Uh, I did raise the temp just a little bit right at the end, just to speed things up a little bit. But these guys all look very beautiful. Stella tells me to let them cool in their own pan for an hour and then drop them out of the pan and let them thoroughly cool. She's taken me this far. I'll trust her for this. And then after that, let the cakes cool down completely, wrap them in plastic, and they'll be good to go until it is time for the frosting. The last thing we need for our carrot cake is a frosting. And I am not gonna buck tradition here because as we all know, the classic frosting for carrot cake is a cream cheese frosting. And there's a bunch of different ways of making them. Some are really almost too simple, cream cheese and powdered sugar, which it, 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 it exists. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, it's less than ideal, let's put it that way. And then there's a range of other different kinds of frosting. What I'm gonna do and what Stella uses in her frosting, in fact, I'm just gonna steal her recipe because this is a pretty standard technique. This is gonna be something called a German buttercream. And we talked about other buttercreams on the show before. Uh, I think the most recent one was the French buttercream in the almond episode. And all the various buttercreams are all made slightly different ways. They all involve eggs and a lot of butter. And that's basically uh, the way that they're made. So a German buttercream, which is what this one is, this is made with a custard base. And into your custard, you beat a ton of butter. And the different buttercreams mostly differ, you know, the, so there's the, the Swiss and Italian buttercreams, uh, which use a cooked meringue base. Those get you the, the very classic sort of fluffier frostings with a lot of air beaten into them. And they only use egg whites. The French buttercream only uses egg yolks, and that gets you a very fluffy frosting as well, um, but it's a lot richer because of the yolks, and it's not as, like, you know, voluminous as a meringue buttercream. The German buttercream with a custard base is by far denser than the other two. Uh, and it is the sort of quintessential, like creamy, thick, rich frosting. So that is what we're going after here. It's going to really showcase the, the smooth texture of the cream cheese. And that's what we're after here. It'll also be a really great contrast with the sort of with the nuts and the and the rough texture of the carrot cake, you know, with the shredded carrots and the nuts and, and sort of a very dense, moist cake. It'll be a really nice contrast with that that rougher texture. So it's really simple to make. We are essentially going to make a cornstarch pudding and beat in butter and cream cheese. It is as easy as it could possibly be. So I've got some milk. This is like 340 grams of milk, I think. Roughly a cup and a half, something like that. Stella, because she is a writer at a major food magazine and has books and stuff like that, she has access, easy access to vanilla beans. So she's, she steeps a vanilla bean in her milk beforehand to get the unparalleled vanilla bean flavor. However, I don't have any vanilla beans right now. Occasionally I find, I find my way into some, but right now I do not have any vanilla beans. I have vanilla extract. So I'm gonna be using vanilla extract. And I'm also, just for fun, I'm gonna dump in a little bit of maple syrup. Not a lot, just enough to give it, give it a little bit of a maple tinge. Easy as can be. I have one bowl that is filled with three eggs, 225 grams of white sugar, 45 grams of cornstarch. This is a cornstarch pudding. The cornstarch is doing most of the thickening work. The eggs are doing a little bit, but mostly it's gonna be the cornstarch. And I am heating up milk. I'm gonna bring it to a boil. I'm gonna temper the eggs. Then I'm gonna add the egg, the tempered eggs into the hot milk and we'll cook it for just a couple minutes to get the custard to start to set and then we'll let it cool. Once it cools, we'll come back and we'll beat the butter in. Don't be afraid of making custard. Don't be afraid of making pudding. They're really easy to do. There are actually, I mean, you can take this same, this exact same custard method and just leave it and then you'll have pudding. 
this would be vanilla pudding. If you add other flavorings, you get other flavors of pudding. Pudding is awesome. I love pudding. So once my milk comes up to a simmer, then I'm going to do the classic bit of tempering my eggs, which, as you may or may not know, is a very critical step in making pudding. And the reason is, is that we want to add a little bit of the hot milk to the egg yolk mixture in order to bring the temperature up and get the whole mixture a little bit smoother and a little bit easier to stir and to incorporate into the hot milk. We just want to raise the temperature a little bit so that when we add it to the hot milk, the eggs do not curdle. So that's the entire point of tempering and it's a very simple operation. There's nothing particularly scary about it. You just have to keep as you add your hot milk and I'm gonna add maybe a quarter to a third of this milk that's in here uh, into probably closer to a quarter uh, into my egg mixture just to raise the temperature a bit get it ready to join with the milk and then here we go I'm starting to see some bubbles so better stabilize my bowl with a towel underneath it Always a good idea when you're whisking in a stainless steel bowl. Put a towel under it so it doesn't go anywhere. So my milk is at a simmer. I'm gonna add just a little bit while I'm whisking. That was right around a quarter of it. Keep whisking. You don't want any individual egg particles to stay in contact with the, with the hot milk too long. You wanna get, get the whole mass a uniform temperature as quick as possible. So now it's a nice liquid. It is warmed up a little, and now I'm going to add this warmed up mass into my milk. Very simple. Give it a whisk for just a minute. Turn my burner back on. I always like to turn my burner off when I'm doing stuff like this. And now I'm going to switch from the whisk to a spatula. You can also use a wooden spoon. And this is just because the spatula gets into the corners a little better, and the corners as always, when you're making anything that's kind of temperature sensitive, the corners of the pan are always where stuff is going to get, is going to sit and it's going to get too hot and the corners are where it's going to burn. If it's going to burn, which it's not going to burn because we're going to keep stirring it, working the corners pretty hard. All I'm doing now, bring it up to a boil and then I'm going to boil it for, it's not really a boil, it's more of a bare simmer, like some bubbles are going to be bursting at the top, it's going to gradually thicken up. We're just gonna cook it for a short amount of time. And the main point of this is to get the starch thoroughly gelatinized, as well as there's some uh, enzymes in the egg yolks that need to get to a certain temperature or it's possible that they can denature the starch. So that's the only goal here. And it's starting to thicken up at the bottom, starting to get chunks of custard. This is kind of one of those deals too, where it will, the, the, one of the things people always worry about when, when they're making custards or puddings or anything like that is they worry about lumps. And it's true, lumps can be an issue. But the way to deal with lumps is once it cools down a little bit, if you beat it for a fairly short amount of time, the lumps will smooth out. And then once the lumps smooth out, then it won't be lumpy anymore. <laughs> it's not going to go back to being lumpy. Um, traditionally, like if you were making, you know, pastry cream in a, in a high, in a, pa in a pastry kitchen, it almost always gets strained through a, through a sieve or through a tammy or something like that as well. But for something like this, it's going to spend a long time in the mixer getting beaten with the butter and the cream cheese. So it is going to have ample opportunity to completely smooth out. Okay. We are starting to get to a legitimate pudding stage where we are now starting to bubble and I'm just gonna let it cook now for another minute or two closer to two I'm gonna turn my turn my burner down as low as it'll go now and it's cooking and as I stir a little more aggressively it smooths out as you stir so it could be pretty rough on it here it's turning into a nice glossy end product. All right, so this is, we'll call this good. So it's basically, you know, it's, it's pretty smooth. Um, if you, you know, you just gotta 
you gotta have a firm hand with it. And, uh, and then you can further refine it. So I'm gonna grab a bowl, because I wanna start cooling this down. Because I can't use it now, because we're making a buttercream, so our butter is gonna have to stay in emulsion the whole time. And we'll talk about this a little bit once we start actually beating the butter in. But with all buttercreams, the temperature at which the entire operation takes place is really, really critical. It's the only real variable that can go wrong. Our next trick is right now we just kind of have a bland bit of milk and eggs. So I'm going to add about a tablespoon and a half or so of vanilla extract. And I'm going to grab my maple syrup, a couple tablespoons of that. Small enough quantity that it's not going to throw off my sugar balance too much, but it's large enough that it'll taste good. Custards and puddings are sort of the, one of the <laughs> one of the foods that they don't really, like when you, the way that they look and the way that they smell when they first come out is a little, uh, personally I find it slightly off-putting because it's kind of this like hot egg smell. And I love hot eggs, you know, but the way that the, way that the hot eggs and the hot milk sort of combine is, is it's not like the most appealing <laughs> aroma in the kitchen, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it does help when you add the, the vanilla <laughs> and the maple syrup. But you know, you don't really look at this, like if somebody just walked in and they had no idea what a pudding or a custard was and they looked at it, they would, I mean, my first thought would kind of be ew. But once it cools down, a lot of those sort of like vaguely sulfuric uh, aromas go away. And you get this really delicious stuff and it's awesome. But right now it kind of looks like, you know, hot snot. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to let that sit. I'm going to throw a piece of plastic wrap on top just to keep it from growing a skin. I got to let that sit for about an hour and I've got my butter and my cream cheese out on the counter. They are getting warm and we are about ready to beat them together. And then once we beat them together, it's time to It'll be time to frost our cake. All right, last step before frosting is finishing the frosting. This is buttercream, so prepare for lots of butter. Uh, this is three sticks of butter and a pound of cream cheese. And I've got, I've left them all out sitting on the counter for a while to get nice and room temperature and soft. My pudding I've just tested is slightly warm, not very, which is what we want. So I'm getting all my butter and all my cream cheese into my mixer. And this is actually reverse the way that we usually do uh, a buttercream. Typically when a buttercream is made with a meringue or with uh, hot egg yolks, you know, French or Italian or Swiss buttercream, uh, typically we'll add the butter to the mixing bowl or with the egg mixture. In this case, we add our pudding to the butter. This is, there was really not very much technical that happens here. The hardest part of this thing is making the, is making the custard and that's really easy. French and Swiss and Italian buttercreams are a little more finicky. You just want to make sure that it is thoroughly beaten. Can't even really call it a trick. <laughs> you know, you just want to make sure that all the lumps are out because particularly with the cream cheese, like if you leave any lumps, it's the same thing with cheesecake. If you leave lumps, it's really hard to get rid of them after you've added other ingredients. So periodically, just gonna scrape down the bowl, look at my texture, make sure I'm getting any chunks out of the way. Taking all this time to get this far, and then you just leave lumps in your cream cheese. If you've let everything soften up beforehand, then it, this doesn't take very long. If your butter and your cream cheese are still a little bit cold, you might have to leave it in, in here for longer to thoroughly beat because it'll warm up while you're beating it, you know? 
So, taste that, see how we are. Mmm. Oh, yeah. Tastes like a mixture of butter and cream cheese. It's super intense on its own. Like, this is not something you'd really want to eat <laughs> by itself because it's so intense. It's intense, but it's not like it's just kind of a one note flavor. Like, you get cream cheese and it's like richer cream cheese and not much else, which is where the custard comes in. And also, Stella's final secret ingredient. The custard, we're not gonna incorporate all at once. We're gonna basically add it in, in bits. Just a chunk of custard at a time. Let one incorporate before you add the second. Periodically stop. Scrape down the bowl. We talked about this pretty extensively in the, in the almonds episode where we talked about French buttercream. Um, and it's not, as long as you let your custard cool down enough, it's usually not much of an issue with this style of buttercream. But if, if your buttercream starts getting greasy and looks like it's starting to break, you just put it in the fridge for a little bit and let it cool down. And if it's starting to get lumps, like the butter's getting, getting hard again, then you just have to beat it more <laughs> and warm it up that way. So those are really the only two. At this stage, those are the only issues you can have with a buttercream. Yeah, it is lovely. It is smooth. Mm. Oh, it's delicious is what it is. It actually tastes a little more like custard at the beginning. As it sort of moves across your palate, the cream cheese really comes out. But we got one more little addition here if we are going to be true to Stella, which we are, and that is the juice of a lemon, which is a nice addition because it really brings everything. It, it's a little shot of acid at the end, really perks everything up. So we'll add the juice of a lemon, strained. You know, if you really want, if you wanted a little more of a lemon flavor, you could zest this lemon in there as well, but I'm not gonna do that. I don't really want, since I have the maple, I think that's enough extra flavor happening and we just bang bang incorporate that and i have a beautiful german buttercream frosting and it can now go on top i will frost it onto my cake as far as frosting goes you can frost however you please oh yeah yeah the lemon juice really gives it a zip right at the end love it German buttercream frosting on a brown butter carrot cake. Minor adapted recipe from the great Stella Parks. I mean, is there anything better that you can do with four pounds of carrots? Nah. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kator Ebane. This is the sixth episode of the summer 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you. 